Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Hello and welcome everybody. It is time for a brand new episode of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Olds, as always, joined by our pal Henry Newman. Say hi, Henry. Hi, Henry. Nice job. Shaheen Khan. I am so reassured that you're still Dan Olds. I am still Dan Olds. <laughs> and our newest bestest buddy, Jesse Lanham. Hey, Jesse. Hey, howdy. How y'all doing? Excellent. I'm, How are you, Dano? I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Meh. Meh. I'm a, I'm a 107 days out and on my third snowstorm in uh, four days. So I'm I'm ready to be gone. Nice. How much how much is piled up outside? I don't want to discuss that, Dan. Over a foot? Dan, I'm not discussing this. You're going to make him cry, Dan. Is this classified information? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. It's just that I don't want to discuss snow anymore. I shouldn't have brought it up in the first place. It's traumatizing information. It is traumatizing. To go outside and look, it's all white. Wow. I just, I would just love the chance to run a snowblower once in my life. Dan? And you get to do it nearly every day. Come on up. I guess brand new two-gallon gas tank, you can use it. You could do the whole neighborhood. I would want to use it to make one enormous pile of snow in front of your house. Great. That would be awesome. I never get an opportunity to do that. Oh, well. So, today, relaxed conversation. We've got a grab bag of different topics. And, Shaheen, you want to go first? I would. There was a piece of news recently about the creator of Linux, Linus Torvalds, who at some conference had spoken about ZFS, the famous file system, and the licensing complexities thereof. And at some point, he'd said, don't use ZFS. So that caused a bit of a stare and led to a very good article in Ars Technica. Don't you find that ZFS adherents are maniacal in it? I was not a big fan of ZFS in the nine, excuse me, the 2000s. It had, in my opinion, it was designed as a web server file system. Read had priority over write. It didn't do a lot of the things I needed to do with metadata. And they fixed a lot of things that I thought were issues and I complained about to some of the developers back when it came out. And I said, this, this is wrong. This isn't how hardware works. You need to design a file system around how hardware works, along with some of the things they were doing. But I think ZFS has made some great strides in the last five, six years. But enough to bring it up to the level where it needs to be? Yes. Oh, yes. It, it was really a very modern file system at a time when a new modern file system was needed. And at this point, it is quite bulletproof. There isn't really anything else in the same category, and what is in the same category isn't quite proven yet. So if you do need a file system, ZFS is a very good choice. So what reasons did Torvalds give not to use it then? Well, that is the discussion. People were saying that obviously with his credentials and how good he is at a lot of the things that he does, when he says something, you take him very seriously. But it seemed like he hadn't kept up with the progress in ZFS and his opinion was reflecting what had perhaps been true or not years earlier. Mm. Mm. At some point, he'd said it was always more of a buzzword than anything else. I'm reading the 
article now that says this jaw-dropping statement makes me wonder whether Torvalds has ever actually used or seriously investigated ZFS. Keep in mind, he's not merely making this statement about ZFS now, he's making it about ZFS for the last 15 years and is relegating everything from atomic snapshots to rapid replication to on-disk compression to pair-block checksumming to automatic data repair and more to the status of, quote, just buzzwords. So there was a a well-founded groundswell of emotion that, hey, you know, there's been a lot of work done in ZFS to make it what it is today. Yeah, but he also talks about the litigiousness of Oracle, which is definitely something to be taken seriously. It's open source. There's a license policy you have to follow. That's it. The whole thing came out because it's licensing is not GPL. It's another open source license. When Oracle acquired Sun, a lot of the Sun software that had already been open sourced basically got forked. Identity management, star office, et cetera, et cetera. And ZFS was an example of it. So there is an open ZFS that is a different fork from Oracle. But I think the fact that Oracle is in the picture probably gives him cause to want to be overcautious. Yeah, I can't really blame him there. And, uh, you know, the guy that wrote this article is pretty obviously biased in favor. But how does ZFS stand up against, for instance, GPFS? But GPFS is a parallel file system. ZFS is for a single node, Dan. It's worth apples and flying pigs. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, okay. Or maybe one flying so, pig versus a whole gaggle of them. Yeah, it's pretty different. <laughs> not comparable. No. So not comparable no, you're, at all. You're, no, okay. it's completely different. Now, it's also true, Henry, that when you use a database for most of business applications, you don't really use a file system at all because the database owns the data, right? Um, Doesn't it go straight to blocks and obviate the file system? Well, what's the difference between, I mean, inodes are in some ways a database, Shaheen. Yes, that's true. Yes, that is true. But I mean, that's the complexity with data is that everything is data. Everything every, everything <laughs> is data. <laughs> yeah. That's well put. I that's think we can stop profound. right here. T-shirt material. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, data is defined done. by Very the actions done. you take on it rather than just calling it data. But data is and at the end all of, the day, of it is data, data, and we're all in a base. That's your. Yes. That's your you making us. You're making a stand on that. Okay, good. Well, before we start arguing about that, another topic. There's a recent study out that's taking a look at efforts and prospects for machine learning use in computer architecture design, which is pretty cool. Although it really hasn't advanced how, how real all is this? that far yet. It's real enough that there are a number of papers written on it, probably 50 since 2016, according to this article. They just sort of lay out how you do it, like supervised learning. What are you learning, though? Well, it's learning how to build the system in order to optimize, for instance, grabbing memory and executing and putting it back. What's the best way to do that? And getting an optimal configuration so is this like an AI system to go through core dumps and make sense of things? Yes. Yeah. And one of the classic tasks for this that's been most examined is trying to figure out whether you're going to get advantages for using execution on GPUs as opposed to CPU only. There's a, a method out there, methodology, 
that will become 91% accurate. It's accurate 91% of the time in predicting whether something should be ported or not ported to GPUs, whether there's a payback for it. Is you need for, for scaling studies in some regard? Yes. To Jesse's question, would you use that in scaling studies? It will help you there, but this is before you even look at the scaling. This is in designing the architecture. Uh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Like looking at branch prediction and that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Gene, did you have a question? Comment? Depends on the GPU. No. no, it depends on the algorithm. Yeah. We're going to be mapping algorithms to technologies. We're already starting to do that. It's kind of like what we did in the 70s, Shaheen, with you know, FPS boxes and vectors. And we're going to be map- matching sensors and algorithms to technology. And a GPU is way too general, in my opinion. But that's what I'm saying. Both sides have to play. It depends on the algorithm and it depends on the hardware. So if the hardware doesn't have that branch prediction thing, your yes. your AI is going to say something else. Yeah, exactly. It, the whole thing here on this little article is looking at how folks are using machine learning or going to use machine learning to get the most out of the hardware. And yeah, the hardware feature has to be there. That's the critical thing in order for it to be used. Now, there are folks from MIT that are using machine learning to predict code performance on a chip. Very good. I am generally rather dubious about most uses of AI because I think sometimes you could have just done it yourself. <laughs> you don't have to really... Oh, I don't know. Do I, fitting. I think that doing it on predict code performance on a chip is a pretty big deal if it works because you look at, like, as they say in the article, Intel's documents on chip architecture are neither error-free or complete. And Intel mm, will admit certain things because it's proprietary. And this way, they were able to predict code performance better than one of Intel's own models. That's not bad. Okay. No, that's oh, not that's bad. that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm open to change my mind, yeah. Shaheen is swayed. He is, yes. Just with a paragraph of that article, Shaheen has now become a proponent of it. No, I've not been proponent of it. Well, you're at least neutral. But I am open to additional data. Well, good, because uh, machine learning and deep learning is going to be used for all this What stuff. I want to know is that if you just look at the spec of the chip mm-hmm. and have a guess, how far off are you? Because remember, we used to do that all the time with yes. the industry standard benchmarking. And the wonderful group we had in our midst who did all of that. Yep. yep. And we were pretty good at it after a while. I say it's probably 50%. Either you're right or you're wrong. <laughs> no, the question is like price is right. It's how close are you to the target? Yeah, I remember making a lot of speculations using the spec benchmark. Many speculations, so to speak. What are you trying to get from the spec benchmark, Dan? What was your goal? Competitive performance. Figuring out but, how competitive yeah. machines might perform against ours. Okay. But what algorithm were you trying? Spec is about, you know, spec in. How fast are ints go? What about memory bandwidth? What about I.O.? Exactly. We would take a look at that, too, but you didn't have quantified benchmarks. Although, actually, if you dive down into Spec FP, Stream is in there, for instance. Well, uh, that took a long time to get Stream into Spec FP, Dan. It was not there in the 90s. No, No, it it was there in the 2000s, though. Yes. You know, all I'm saying is it depends on when you picked your time of you evaluating spec. Well, I started out as a competitive guy just as you started out as a slimy benchmarker. 
No, I did not start. That well, way. either way, but that you is, were one. That's, but my okay. point is, I, you do what you can. You do what you have to, yeah. and you can only work with what you can work with. But competitive analysis is a good use case for this. Yeah, but I would expect it's going to be a long time before it gets out into the wild to be used like that. So anybody else have anything to throw into the grab bag? Yes. One other piece of news that I thought was significant is Google bringing IBM Power Systems to its cloud is the headline of this news in TechCrunch. And I'll read the first paragraph. It says, as Google Cloud looks to convince more enterprises to move to its platform, it needs to be able to give businesses an on-ramp for their existing legacy infrastructure and workloads that they can't easily replace or move to the cloud. And a lot of those workloads run on IBM Power Systems with their power processors. And until now, IBM was essentially the only vendor that offered cloud-based power systems. Now, however, Google is also getting into this game by partnering with IBM to launch IBM Power Systems on Google Cloud. So I think that's pretty interesting, albeit motivated by migration to the cloud. Yeah. It does provide a different configuration on these big public clouds. But aiming at enterprise customers, it sounds like. Well, ultimately, that's where the market is, and they're all having to go there. But it is interesting to me that they have to provide something compatible with what the enterprise has to get them to move the workload. They say what OS? Is it AIX? I don't believe they say that. But it's probably whatever the app is running on because it's targeted at apps that aren't easily migrated to the cloud. So it's, it's AIX then for most likely. I would believe so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something. It's not really... I don't think there's many... HPC-like workloads running on AIX. Don't know. What is interesting to me is that these public clouds are now offering configurations that are pretty heterogeneous. They now have x86, they got ARM, they got various types of GPUs, FPGAs, now with power systems. Oracle has Spark in their cloud. So they're starting to look more like hosting systems than the original cloud, Yeah, which is kind of interesting to me. It's not homogeneous, is the point. Yeah. So, and the second interesting thing is that it is, in, at, the, at least in this case, motivated by migrating the workload away from on-prem to the cloud. And maybe once it's over there, you can then work on migrating it to other platforms. But you need an on-ramp, and the initial configuration had better be compatible with what the enterprise already's got. Yeah. Henry. Dan. Are there any reasons why no one should ever be online ever? This week? Yes, there are. And there's some good reasons. So there was a database hosted by this organization that was had, I think it was 56 million records, including your name, your telephone number, all kinds of interesting things about 56 million people in the United States hosted in China by a company that was completely unsecure and anybody could download all wow. they had to do is get to it wow yeah that's incredible we should put the link out to see if you're one of those 56 million people because you think about it 56 million people is about uh well if we got 349 million so 56 million it's about you a know seventh, a six six a seven a six yeah. a six a six, yeah, a six seventh of the population pretty good chance we're in there that's like 
That's a good chunk. There's a good chance of it. So there's a good chance one of the four of us is there. If you think about it statistically, is there a tool out there where we can check and see? <laughs> read the article, Dan. Okay. Or maybe you shouldn't go online and maybe you shouldn't read the article and be online. Ever. I'm going to stop being ever. online ever <laughs> after this call then, because that sounds pretty bad. That's a it was bad. Yeah, that's rough. Great way to start the new year. It is. It's fantastic. And I don't know if you hear that sound. Another great way to start the new year is with our catches of the week. So, Jesse, you got one? I do not. It is day two of the semester, so I am just going to classes and enjoying 7.30 labs. How the class is going. Beautiful morning. They're going okay. I mean, 7.30 in the morning and you're doing a networking lab. But, like, besides that. You know, as part of your deal with us... As a fully-fledged co-host, which I don't think we've officially announced yet. I guess I just did. But we do get to see your grades after every term. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, was that in the contract somewhere? It was, it was not easily read. Six-point type, but it's in there. Yeah, white on white paper. Uh, yeah, and it. we'd like to plot your progress. So if you could maybe start with oh, forwarding yeah. your high school transcripts to me. <laughs> And then also the, the stuff you've done. Yeah, yeah. We'll just plot your GPA, and we'll have it there for people to see. I think that. I think that. And, and the other thing is, Dan has offered to help you with any tutoring you need <laughs> at any time, day or night. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with that. And just to kickstart it, he's going to expose his own academic credentials and transcripts. Yeah, we we could compare transcripts. Ooh, that could be fun. Ooh. That would be interesting. That would be very interesting. So you probably have it somewhere in some filing cabinet. Yeah, I probably do. Those were all, you know, paper back then. Yeah. Some things are better left unseen, though. Just because it exists doesn't mean it should be viewed. <laughs> no, you were good. So, yeah. Shaheen, you got a catch of the week? Yes, I do. You may remember from one of the episodes months ago about low-Earth orbit objects mm. and a company called Leo Labs that I found very, very interesting. So they track all these objects and analyze roughly what they say, 800,000 potential collision scenarios each day. Mm. So this article is about probability of collision. So as usual, I'll read this particular paragraph that has all the right buzzwords in it. So it says, there are multiple steps required to accurately characterize the risk of a collision occurring between two objects in space. Conjunction data messages, or CDMs, have long been the industry standard data product for quantifying risk for these types of events. They provide key information such as the IDs of the two objects that may collide, the time of closest approach, that's TCA, time of closest approach, their positions and velocities, missed distance, probability of collision, PC, that's the real big metric, and the computed measurement uncertainties for each object at time of closest approach. Wow. So you got all those buzzwords there but i'll put the link up it's a fascinating article to read and i highly recommend it because it's just way there's cool. a lot of data crunching behind each one of those buzzwords that you talked about each one of those acronyms well you got to see the videos that they've got because they track all these objects around space and they map it to you know they, they do the visualization around the earth and the earth starts looking like a fuzzball with all this stuff oh, yeah. around it but what do they do if they find the probability is high for a collision? Do they inform the owners, or what can be done? I don't believe one has happened that they documented. Uh -huh. But it says on December 8th, just last month, Leo Labs determined that the Heyang-1 and Cosmos 1354 satellites had an upcoming close approach on December 15th that was of concern. 
This link shows the evolution of the event over eight days, during which time our system generated 52 CDMs, and you click on the map, etc. But I believe you do let the owners know, and they have an opportunity to redirect it and change the course. Make a little bit of an adjustment and make it work. Right. Wow. That's... It's they kind of like air traffic controllers for objects outside the space. Wow. Now, not all of them are controllable. No. So... Yeah. Air traffic control minus the air and the control. Yes. <laughs> More like yeah. air traffic. Because it's not like they can move anything. So yeah, I guess my point is, if you're going to crash, and a lot of these things don't have any fuel, they're just up there, why do you care? They're just going to crash. And then there's debris everywhere, and then you got more things worse. to track. Well, yeah. I mean, well, that's the problem. I mean, the problem with zapping them is that, is that you just cause more debris. But even if it's out yeah. of fuel it could still be operating and functioning in some way. I think it's going to depend on what it is and in what shape it is. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Henry, what do you got? Nothing. Your net is empty too? My net is empty too. I'm shocked. I'm sorry. You see, I yeah. started this catch and release program. I think it's becoming popular. It is. <laughs> it is. Well, I have a catch, and I think Henry's going to hate this, but... Perfect. Argon's Mira supercomputer is being retired. After years, 12 years, well, no, seven years of hard Dan, work. It's an, inan- it's an inanimate object. Not to the. It is Argon. Not though. to the users, Henry. Not to the users. Remember when Titan retired? We had a whole we had a, procession. We here. did. We had a ceremony almost. Somber music. In an, again, an inanimate in in object. It is a ten. <laughs> I've never it's a ten, ten petaflop inanimate object. A blue jean. It's a, it's a bunch of rat. It's a bunch of racks. Uh, with why are they? Why are they retiring it? Sounds pretty powerful. Yeah, it's time. It's just time, and I think that I don't know who's still producing the processors they need for those. It might be getting tough to get spares because they retired Blue Jean, what, three, four years ago? IBM did? Longer, maybe? Yeah. So there you go. Mira? So farewell, Mira. We knew you. We knew you well. You provided us with 39.6 billion core hours on more than 800 projects from pharmacology to astrophysics. You did your job. Well done. Powerful thing. Powerful thing. And we lay yet another supercomputer to rest. In the fullness of time, this will happen to all supercomputers. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, silicon (laughs) to silicon, flops to flops, flops to knops. (laughs) So don't be sad, though. There are new systems coming, and Argon's going to have a shiny new exascale system in another year or two, depending on who you believe. But uh, we look while we look back with fondness at Mira, we have to turn our gaze to forward to the future. Thank you. That was very uplifting, then. I try and end on a high note. Well done. Thank you. Some dramatic music, some swelling dramatic music we needed through there. We will insert the that. production department is going to work overtime to match that eloquence. <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway, anybody else have anything to add before we call this an episode? Is is there anybody still? <laughs> I think we lost Henry. Still? He's 
No, we didn't. <laughs> I just have, I'm just I'm just seething over the eulogy for a computer. <laughs> I'm talking about our audience. Is anybody still listening? No. I think this is when you tap the microphone. Anybody there? Yeah. <laughs> I do have one tiny catch of the week that has really nothing to do with computing, but I thought it was just a very cool story that a guy is fighting through a divorce with his wife and he hates her attorney. So in setting up the trial, he asked for a trial by combat. Like a duel? I guess so, <laughs> which I've only really seen in Star Trek where they do a trial by Dan, combat. Dan, yes. Avogadro's number and pie are similar to a guy hating his ex-wife's attorney. It's a universal constant. Yes, I would agree with that. But asking for a trial by <laughs> combat in an American court is pretty cool. I don't know. I think it just kind of proves you're unhinged. <gasps> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, we understand why there's divorce proceedings now, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. On, that, On note. that note, let's go ahead and call that an episode of Radio Free HBC. Thank you all out there for listening. You want to get in touch with us, it is podcast at RadioFreeHPC.com. And give us a follow on Twitter. That's also at Radio Free HPC. Thank you very much and talk to you soon. Bye-bye and boom. Boom is good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>